Hi everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Dan Pardo, and this is Pardo's Turn, my ongoing web series and podcast for fellow nerds of the musical theater. In today's episode, I'm sidestepping my usual format to plug a fantastic new book, Rock in the Musical Theater, A Guide for Singers, by one of my biggest mentors, composer, arranger, orchestrator, and music director extraordinaire, Joseph Church. Currently on faculty at NYU Steinhardt, Joe is best known for music directing two truly groundbreaking Broadway shows, The Who's Tommy and The Lion King. With Tommy, which more directly relates to this new book, he worked closely alongside the legendary Pete Townsend, who wrote a sterling recommendation on the back cover, and Sir George Martin, known to many as the Fifth Beatle, who produced the Grammy Award-winning cast album, one of my absolute favorites. Prior to this latest edition from the Oxford University Press, Joe authored Music Direction for the Stage, A View from the Podium, the most comprehensive book for aspiring professionals in our field. Some of his other credits include Randy Newman's Faust, Amazing Grace, Rothschild and Sons, and A Sign of the Times. He also has a long history as a pit player, stepping in to conduct Sister Act and In the Heights, among countless others. The great Alex Lacamoire, who won his first Tony Award for In the Heights, provides the foreword to the book and clearly states, Joe Church knows his stuff. He's the real deal. I've been saying that since I met him 21 years ago, and I will continue to say it to anyone who will listen. Hey, Joe. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you are the first music director I'm bringing on to Pardo's turn. Well, it's about time. It is, and uh, I'm so lucky because you literally wrote the book uh, when it comes to music direction. I should say that the reason we're talking today is because you just wrote a second book, which will be the crux of our uh, conversation. But uh, you have this book, A View from the Podium, uh, Music Direction for the Stage. What prompted you to to write this tome, this guide? Uh, What prompted me to write the book was a general feeling that music direction had been the black sheep of the of the creative triumvirate of music uh, sure. music director choreographer director and that the level of music direction quality such as it is which i sort of have to define in the book what it actually means to be a quality music director was uh, overlooked in a lot of situations that it had never really been treated seriously that it was kind of a job that anyone who was available to be the music director would do hey he plays the piano exactly. well let's get him to be the music director it sort of takes a musical from beginning to end from inception to completion so that you see all the different phases of how a music director might interact with other collaborators and how much value a music director can truly be if they have great mastery of the score, if they have proper collaborations and connections with the other members of the creative team, Mm -hmm. if they work effectively with the cast and orchestra, all those topics are kind of the subject of the book. Mm -hmm. So it tries to raise music direction to a more scholarly level and to a much more detailed level than it had ever been examined before. Uh, the, the story of how the book came about was actually quite funny because I had thought about writing this book for a long time. Right. And I wrote a draft and I submitted it to Rutledge Press, um, who does a lot of music books, and they accepted it and then they sent me sort of how they'd like to present it and they would put it in a series of other books about different functions in music. And I thought, I don't want to be part of a series. I want this to be something special. I resisted uh, subbing at Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, for a really long time. Okay. Uh, Partly because I thought, oh my god, it's a fake orchestra, all that controversy with 802. I don't Mm want to go in there. But, you know, I sat in the pit, and I thought this was kind of fun. And my friend Jeff Kleitz was conducting. And Dave Hahn, who has since retired from music direction, uh, was, I think, maybe the regular player or one of the regular players. 
And I was just chatting with him, and I said, I've written this book about music direction, but it's, got, it's over at Rutledge. And he said to me, you know, my friend Norm Hershey is an editor at Oxford University Press, mm -hmm. and he's been trying to solicit professional music directors to write this book for about two years. I said, oh my gosh, put me in touch with him. Yes. I met with Norm two days later. He loved the outline, loved the book, gave me suggestions for rewrites, and I broke my contract with Rutledge and signed with Oxford. It is dense, but it's very readable for the most I part. So. I, mean, I think there's... Uh, a certain level of professionalism because the target audience are aspiring music directors mm -hmm. as opposed to people who aren't as well trained. Right. Um, now, your new book, uh, Rock and Musical Theater, is by title, a guide for <laughs> singers. That's right. So, did, uh, was there a, any sort of learning curve or adjustment to change your focus uh, this time around? Not really. I mean, I've been coaching singers since, you know, since I was 20 years old. Of course. And I've been doing rock and roll since I was 12 years old, mm -hmm. so the combination was fine. And in a way, it's not just for singers. Uh, in a way, that's a bit of a marketing tool to target it at its primary audience. Uh, but I do think that other people can benefit from it as well. The premise of the book is that rock is now a style, or rock and not just rock, but the many things that rock implies, which mm -hmm. is quite a bit of, of music and pretty much all the music that we've been listening to since the 70s or so. The current generation of performers who are performing this music, their parents weren't even born when rock and roll started. Yeah. We were now two generations removed, right. not just one generation removed from the mm -hmm. style. And in the same way that any responsible classical musician would study classical style before he or she would perform classical music, mm -hmm. well, now we were far enough historically away from the origins of rock that it became incumbent on these new performers to actually study the classical style, as it were, yes. of rock. And that's sort of what this book is about. Mm -hmm. You know, from Elvis and the Beatles to Sex Pistols and the Ramones to Metalheads, you know, there's always been a tradition of rebellion in rock music. Not so much in musical theater, exactly. to the extent that like, exactly. they literally have to be directed and told <laughs> what to do. Well, again, that's one of the primary topics of the book, is uh -huh. reconciling the rock and roll aesthetic with the theater aesthetic. Yeah. The theater aesthetic is very planned. It's very stylistically not terribly free. You don't have a lot of freedom of performance in the, on the musical theater stage. Mm -hmm. You pretty much have to give the same show every night, yeah. whereas every concert that a rock performer gives will be totally different. They might just bite the head off the bat or something like that <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the show. You never know what's going to happen or be thrown into a birthday cake like uh -huh. Big Jagger. It's a matter of understanding the values of rock that are being transferred to the theater and attending to those. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every new style of music has been a reboot or a, a reaction to something that has come before. Oh, this is getting too tame, too vanilla, too easy. We need to write something that mm -hmm. changes this. And rock was... Uh, definitely a reaction to the very non-rhythmically based music of 1900 to 1950. Mm -hmm. These were melodies that could be interpreted in any number of rhythmic ways, in any number of stylistic ways. Yeah. Rock, pretty much you had to rock it or it didn't really work. Mm -hmm. It also changes the way people sing and the way people interpret melody. Um, but more important at this point was to figure out how to bring the rebellious spirit of rock and roll into the theater in a manageable way so that it could be absorbed into your performance. Mm -hmm. I identify rock archetypes, for mm -hmm. instance. You know, the disenfranchised youth, the rebellious spirit, the sexually liberated, yeah. the kind of things that you see in rock songs. Well, mm -hmm. interestingly, now in the modern theater, and maybe as a consequence of the intrusion, as it were, of rock into the theater, there are more rock acting values embodied in the characters who play in rock musicals. Sure. Therefore, you have an avenue from the style into theater. It's uh, the new ingenue. It's the new ingenue. I mean, Tommy is the yeah. new ingenue in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the lost youth looking for himself, trying to find right. himself in this culture. The Dear Evan Hansen, mm -hmm. the people like that.
You said it's important to bring rock into a manageable context for the stage. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I have to tell singers is uh, be um, aware of their vocal health, because certainly there are difficult uh, roles in traditional musical theater. Alphaba is a hard sing, Jean Valjean, right. you know, Rose. But I think it's a different animal to approach a rock score than it is a traditional musical theater score. Yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that the traditional rock singing does involve sort of vocal cord bleeding and and visits to Dr. Kessler and things like that, just mm -hmm. to in order to maintain your career, because it's a style of music that tends to be sung with such great emotion and passion yes. or or intensity that the voice becomes an afterthought. Mm -hmm. But it's not at all impossible to train your voice to handle the needs of rock and still maintain a healthy vocal yeah. production. Right. I, mean, I mean, clearly there are rock bands that are still touring, you know, 40, totally. 50 years later, yeah. so some so, people are doing it right. Well, yeah. and, and even, look, voices age, voices mature, mm -hmm. voices change. Yeah. I just saw the, the Who's Tommy tour, and they're still singing in the original key, and, and, and Daltrey's still screaming out those notes, and when he can't get them, he just doesn't get them. Yeah. Uh, Billy Joel, on the other hand, is touring with every single song transposed down a major third. <laughs> <laughs> Now you just invoked Tommy. Uh, anyone who knows your biography, even you know on the surface level, knows that you music directed uh, the first uh, Broadway production of Tommy. Uh, how, at uh, at that age, did you become the authority of rock music in the theatrical context? Well, first of all, I would quibble with the idea of my me being the only authority or the the authority on on rock music in a theatrical context. But it was one of the sort of first sort of true rock shows. You know, there are a lot of shows that sort of purported to rock without actually being there. Yeah. And I think one of the things that Des McEnough was so excited about was he felt this was a rock and roll experience. Yeah. And I think the reason that Tommy, the production, Tommy, the Broadway show didn't do better was because the producers didn't envision it in the same way as the director did. They mm -hmm. still saw it as a Broadway show and they tried to market it as that instead of trying to market it as a rock event, which I think would have made it tremendously more successful. Look, Tommy had been my friend since childhood. I have to tell you, I have the vocal folio from Tommy. It was the first piece of sheet music I think I ever bought. To celebrate 50 years? <laughs> to celebrate 50 years. So I already kind of could play those songs. Yeah. Oddly enough, their music director quit at the last minute, about two weeks before they were to go into production mm. at La Jolla, and I was playing auditions for Steve Margosius and Fame, the musical Fame, and Des McEnough said to Steve, who was or had been contracted as the orchestrator for Tommy, he said, do you know anyone who plays rock piano well? And said, well, there's this kid, Joe Church, who's playing our audition. He's pretty good. So I flew out to La Jolla, and Des said, can you play any of Tommy? I said, sure, no problem. And I sat down, and I played and the Pinball Wizard, yeah. the, including the intro from memory, including the jangle, <laughs> and everything. He said, do you have the job? I said, I've never heard anyone play that at the piano before. Even the guy we had before couldn't play it before. Uh -huh. So whatever authority I have comes, I think, from my upbringing. I grew up on 9th Street University Place in, a, uh, in Manhattan in a building overlooking Washington Square Park. Uh -huh. I opened my window on a Saturday afternoon and I heard rock and roll. I heard bongo drums. I heard guitars. I heard everything there was to hear. I was steeped in that culture. I was a, like a little rock fiend. I was this little rock musicologist. I knew every <laughs> soloist on every album released. I knew whose album was coming out when. I was one of those kind of rock heads. Yeah. Although I practiced classical music and I did theater too as a kid. Sure. It was rock music that really moved me. It's, it's part of my makeup. Uh, so we were uh, just briefly talking about that iconic which is not the most pianistic thing, although, uh, although a good pianist can make it work. I find that when I approach a score that seems more piano-centric, regardless of what the drummer is doing, it just seems more musical theater than something that's guitar-driven. And maybe that's my own bias. Uh, I mean, I love piano. I've been playing it all my life. But when I see something like 
an American idiot like a next to normal that's really driven by the guitar. It just feels more rock and roll. To yeah, me. Do you think? I think it's I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, piano is not the central instrument of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. One of the problems is it's really hard to write down guitar based scores. It's just simply hard to notate them. Yeah. If you look at a show like Spring Awakening, mm -hmm. the score is it's kind of like how do you interpret this? Yeah. It's a lot of slashes and a lot of sort of you know, suggestions, and right. it really takes sort of a little bit of research to get the show right. you got to go back and listen to earlier recordings, mm -hmm. trying to figure out what Duncan Sheep meant by this, what the orchestrators meant by this. Rock is definitely more defined by guitar, but not surprisingly, mm -hmm. musical theater has taken a grip around it and based it a little bit more around the piano, which I think is one reason why rock music in today's theater culture is a little bit watered down. Yeah. I, I look for nice ways to say that. Are there any writers that you've come across uh, either in your capacity as uh, a professor at NYU or otherwise uh, who are writing real rock stories? Oh, absolutely. People like Zach Zeta who's writing rock. Uh, I know when I was teaching Brian Loudermilk early on, he was really high on the idea of writing a true crossover song. A song could be a theater song, but actually would end up on the charts. Yeah. There are a lot of people who are capable of it, but, but again, and I say this in the book too, theater is still theater. The values that the storytelling and the production of a piece of musical theater have will always take precedence even over the musical style. Mm -hmm. So even if you're writing a rock show, and it's really meant to be a rock show, there are probably going to be moments when you simply can't rock for reasons of character, plot, scenario. Yeah. Look at Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton is entirely rap until King George comes on. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's not even that. It's entirely rap until the sisters come on. And once mm -hmm. the sisters sing, the music shifts over to pop a little bit. It becomes a little bit more melodic. Yeah. And Lynn is brilliant at writing for women, but he knows that what's going to sound good in their voice is probably not this intense rap that's being done by many of the men, but he gives them more melodic material. As I said, we just hit 50 years with Tommy. Are there any other either concept albums or rock operas that haven't yet reached the stage <laughs> that you think uh, would have a good shot? With, you know, when American Idiot came out, I loved mm -hmm. that record so much. I just yeah. thought it was a great record on many, many levels. When I heard it was being turned into a stage piece, mm -hmm. I just rejoiced uh -huh. for a minute. And then I said, <laughs> What? <laughs> What's, what story are they telling? What yeah. are they doing? What's, whose story will it be? And that's kind of what the, the stage piece ended up being. Mm -hmm. It was a kind of a nice reproduction of the music and the vibe of the show, but we didn't really come out with much story. We yeah. didn't leave there with anything except American Idiot, the album. Uh, to answer your question more directly, not, not that jumped to mind. There's that My Chemical Romance album. Um, uh, the Black Parade? Yeah, that I thought might be interesting. Um, mm -hmm. You know, here and there, and again, I think this is recognized by creatives and producers who choose instead to make a jukebox musical because mm -hmm. it's really a better way to show rock and roll in the theater. And if you can wind some kind of story around it, mm -hmm. well, that's great. Um, and that's kind of what happens a lot with bio jukebox musicals. Sure. You're beautifuls and you're into browns mm -hmm. and things like that, which do a perfectly effective job of telling their story using those existing songs. The Jersey Boys may be the best example of all. It's maybe the best of those of the bunch. For a lot of young actors who have to go into an audition uh, setting, what words of wisdom do you have when approaching a rock song as opposed to a uh, you know, R&H? Well, first song? of all, cho choose your material really carefully. Mm -hmm. uh, second of all, get with someone who knows what they're doing rock-wise, who can immediately identify the inauthentic uh, tendencies that you have in your performance. Mm -hmm. uh, someone who can 
uh, teach you performance practices of rock that you might not be familiar with. You know, as with any theater song, you want to analyze it intensively, and uh, I would hope that we look at the way the music supports the lyric as well, and not just at the text itself. Flexibility. Yeah. The ability to sort of jump into a rock context, and again, mm -hmm. that you can't without the knowledge of where this came from. You have mm -hmm. to understand the protest movement, the uh -huh. disenfranchisement, the anti-disestablishmentarianism. I just got to use that word in a sentence. How often do you go. get to do that? But those are the basic uh, 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 values of rock. Uh, rock, again, is not just musical. It's cultural. How much of that kind of cultural context uh, and societal uh, background do you talk about in the book? Absolutely. It's an essential feature of what rock is. Agreed. Yeah, you can't, you can't really know rock until you understand where it came from. A lot of the performers are out there today weren't born on 9-11, man. Yeah. We're not, I mean, we're not even talking about Kent State or, yeah. or the, the assassination of Martin Luther King or Bobby Kennedy. We're not even mm -hmm. talking about the kind of events that fueled uh, the rebellious spirit of yeah. the 60s and 70s. So uh, these are historical events and cultural events that kids really need to know more about before they go into rock as a, as a style. So you're a professor over at NYU. Um, do you feel like uh, the ability to interpret and perform rock music for your undergrad students especially is a prerequisite that should be a part of every showcase, or do you think it's more like a specialty skill like tapping or tumbling? Oh, no, I think at this point, because uh, pretty much every piece of new musical theater is being written in a pop or rock style, it's an absolutely essential part yeah. of your arsenal. It's not, you can't really separate it anymore. And again, that was one of the reasons I wrote this book. Mm -hmm. there, there weren't any books like this. Mm -hmm. There weren't any books that simply addressed how to sing rock, rock songs in a musical, uh -huh. in whatever their context, jukebox musical, book musical, and it covers all of that ground, I hope. No, it's not just a specialty anymore. Uh, it's, it's, the other stuff may be a specialty. Tap dancing becomes a specialty. Mm -hmm. Singing legit becomes a specialty. Yeah. And please also remember, this is so, so very important. Musical theater singing does not require a great voice. Most of the stars of our contemporary musical theater are not the greatest singers in the world. And when we think of our favorite stars, there are many of them who were not great singers. They were great actors who were able to act a song effectively enough and be musical enough. Right. And this goes all the way back to Roger Hammerstein and mm -hmm. earlier. In all the old uh, R&H musicals, the reason that the vocal is doubled in the orchestration is to keep Mary Martin yeah. on pitch. Yeah. Or to keep the reason that, that Shall We Dance is written in the range of a seventh uh -huh. is because that's the entire yeah. range of Gertrude Lawrence. Lawrence. So that's, and wow, what they did with the seventh is really amazing. Yeah. But, but the fact is that, that Robert Preston is not a good singer. Hugh Jackman's okay, but Lin-Manuel mm -hmm. Miranda's not that great a singer. And mm -hmm. these are our favorite leading people, right. our people who aren't great singers. But can they rock? Oh yeah, they can. Uh, well, where can you find the book? Amazon, OUP. I, I always recommend you get it on the Oxford University yes. Press sign. It's the same price right now. And uh, hopefully soon in the bookstores as well. I, I know that the intent of the book is a little bit more as a textbook. Mm -hmm. So I think the first step for Oxford is to shop it to all their book fairs and uh, academic things. It's already been placed in at least five curricula that I'm aware of. And hopefully it'll last a while too. It's not, even though, you know, rock is something that's very volatile and changes mm -hmm. a lot. There's been a bit of a stylistic uh, uh, lull. There hasn't been a whole lot of innovation in pop music since around maybe 2000, 2005. Well, this conversation was very interesting. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. My great uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, if you like this episode, give us a thumbs up. Please follow the work of Dr. Joseph Church. We'll see you next time on Partister. Thank you, Dan. Bye.